would like to uh, have a little meeting again this week like we did last week. So all the little ones, it doesn't just have to be first grade and under. Come on down. Uh, we're going to have a little children's chat. Happy Father's Day, by the way, dads. That's not why I'm doing this, and I just remembered it's Father's Day. So happy Father's Day. No, she, she told me Happy Father's Day. I just forgot to say Happy Father's Day earlier. Goodness gracious. So, kids, let me read this again. It says, this book is written so that you may believe. Say that word. Believe. Whoa, that was rough. I didn't hear any of y'all. Good job. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, say it again, believing, you may have life in his name. Now, last week... All you guys were over on the, in the other building, and we had something really exciting happen. These two young men right here got up, and they told the congregation that they believe. Let me hear that again. Believe in Jesus. Have you believed in Jesus? Oh, you, you have to repeat it every time I say it. Good job. Good work. I want you guys to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that in your heart there are two things. There's a throne and there's a cross. Every one of us, when we're born, do you know who's seated on the throne of our lives and our hearts? Nope. You. Every one of us. This is what we are born on the throne of our life and we think we're in charge and we think we're the best and we think we're smarter than our brothers and sisters and mommies and daddies and everybody else. And when we think that way, we sin, don't we? But what does the Bible tell us? Who died on the cross for us? Jesus. He died on the cross to save us. But if we want him to be king of the life, of our lives, who has to get off that throne in our hearts? We do. But where do we go? We go to the cross. We have to die to what we want and become alive to what Jesus wants. He is to be king of our lives. That's what these two boys did last week. They said, I don't want to be the king of me anymore. I'm going to die to myself. I'm not in charge anymore. Jesus is in charge of me. That's what it means, boys. Let's pay attention. That's what it means when we say that Jesus is Lord. And I want you kids to know that, Pastor Jason, I pray for every one of you by name. That you would profess that Jesus was Lord of your life. And I know that your mommies and daddies pray for you all the time, too. That you would profess that Jesus is Lord of your life. And it's very important to us that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and that you invite him to be the king of your life. Have you ever invited Jesus to be the king of your life? You can do it today. And I encourage you, talk to your teachers when you go back there. Talk to your mommies and daddies today. We want each of you to make Jesus the king of your life. Let's pray. Dear God, we love you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Every one of us sins when we want to be in charge of us. But you gave us Jesus to be the king. And so, Lord, I want to pray for every one of these children that I look at right now. And I ask, oh God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would teach them how to believe and that you would call them to yourself so that they would make Jesus the king of their lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, little ones, y'all head that away to children's worship. That's first grade and under.
Well, here we are at the end of five months in the Gospel of John. And as we're bringing these first six chapters of John to a close this week and next, uh, let's remember John's overall purpose for writing this biography of Jesus. We read it in John 20 already twice this morning. Why did Jesus' disciple John write this book? And he tells us clearly. He wrote this gospel so that you guys, the readers, the hearers of it, would believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing you would experience eternal life, a new life that begins now and lasts forever. But if the whole goal of this book is for people to hear and believe, why does Jesus give such hard teachings along the way? These last couple of chapters, he's been preaching things that are so offensive, so strange, that people are turning away. Why did he do that? Well, he did it to test the crowd that was following him. He wasn't testing them because he didn't know whether they were really believers or not. It says that in the text that he knew who believed and who, who didn't. It was a different kind of test. Jesus is turning up the heat to slough off the chaff from the crowd, to refine the crowd, to whittle it down to the people who actually get the message of Jesus and believe the message of Jesus. Jesus is forcing the same issue that John is forcing with his book. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the gospel in a way that has changed and is changing your life? Let's look again at our text, verse 60, and then we'll jump down to verse 66. Verse 60 in John 6 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 66 After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These are people who proclaim to be disciples, right? So Jesus said to the 12, the 12 that are left, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus has turned up the heat, and he's lost a lot of people who didn't believe the message, and yet there's still one lingering. So what about you? What's your faith like? Is your faith like that of Judas and the others who eventually walked away? Or is your faith like that of Peter and those who persevered? And how can you know the the difference between the two? Peter and Judas look a lot alike through most of the gospel, don't they? Even at the end, they both seem to betray Jesus. How do I know if my faith is the real deal? Well, if you will, let me borrow uh, Jesus' method and instigate a, a test. Three tests, in fact, to help you see the medal of your faith. Two of these tests are very objective, very clear, very easy to see and understand. And the third one is a little more subjective. Here's test number one, first blank in your worship guide in the back if you like to take notes or space. So here's test number one. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that Jesus is God? 
This idea of Jesus' divinity was a very real stumbling block for the people in Jesus' day and the people in our day who simply can't assent to the idea that there is only one God and that he has revealed himself through Jesus, this supposed carpenter's son. Yet what did uh, Simon Peter say in verse 68? Look at it again. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You recall a month or so back, we had two weeks where I preached on the Trinity, and and I said, you're not going to figure out this idea of the Trinity rationally. You're going to have to use your imagination to grasp this notion that one God exists eternally as three persons. And if you don't have that fully figured out in your brain, don't fret about it, because I don't either. Augustine didn't. None of us do. It's above us. But as you examine your own faith, and as you ask the question, what kind of disciple am I? Do I really belong to Jesus, or will I eventually fall away? A simple test is just asking, do you believe that Jesus is God? Here's your next blank. Jesus made some bold claims in the Gospel of John about his relationship with God the Father. So do you trust that he was telling the truth? Do you trust that he was telling the truth? Do you agree with Peter that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, or do you believe that Jesus is a liar, or uh, that he's completely deluded? Those are pretty much the options you've got. And a lot of the time when people are examining their own faith, the first thing they look for is a feeling. Some remarkable strength of faith or some quality of faith. It's not that complicated. Let's start with the basis. Let's start with the objective. You're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're not saved by the quality of your faith. It's who you believe in that saves you. So it's a very simple question. Do you think Jesus told the truth about himself or do you think he's a liar? Or that the Bible is untrue. I mean, that's another way around Jesus altogether, just throughout the scriptures. But if you believe the scriptures are true, and you believe that Jesus is God, that's a really good sign. Why? Here's your next blank. The divinity of Jesus will not be acceptable to our minds or temperament without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, this idea that Jesus is God of me and everybody is just not going to be acceptable to us. That's a work of the Spirit in us. Look again at verses 60 to 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So in chapters 6 and chapter 5, we've been seeing Jesus building this argument. And what is the argument he's building? Back in chapter 5, he said that God the Father has life in himself. Where does life in this world come from? It comes from God the Father. That's where life is from. And then he says, and since the Father has life in himself and he gives it away, so also the Son has life. 
And he gives it to whom he will. And now in our text, he adds, he goes further and he says that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, guess what? He has life and he gives life away. And then he adds, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who don't believe. What's Jesus saying here at the conclusion of this argument he's built? He means this. It's your next blank. There's one source to life, really any life, but eternal life is what it says. There's one source of life, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And how do you get that life? Here's your blank. By believing the words of Jesus. How do you get the life that's in the Father, Son, and Spirit, the life that lasts forever? Believe the words of Jesus. His words are spirit and life. It's the same lesson as the previous section. How do we eat this bread? That if we eat it, we'll be satisfied forever. How, Jesus? Believe my words. How do we get this water that never runs dry that he told the, uh, the Samaritan woman about? How do we get that water? Believe the words that he's saying. How can we have the eternal life that he offered to Nicodemus in the dark of night? He says it there too. Believe the gospel over and over and over and over. Jesus says there's one way to eternal life. It's not your works. And it's no religion. Eternal life comes through believing the message of Jesus. So there's no room at the table for polytheism or multiple ways to eternal life. We're not all religions taking different paths up the same mountain. There is one God and one God alone who has offered salvation from death and hell. And how did he do it? Through faith in Jesus. So what about you? Is your faith like that of Judas and those who walked away? Or is your faith like that of Peter and those who persevered? And how can you know the difference? You can test the state of your faith according to the words of Jesus. So do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross to provide forgiveness of sins? Do you trust in him alone for eternal life? Do you believe the gospel? So there are our two... uh, I feel like I skipped something. Did I skip a point? I sure did. A test two. I got excited. Sorry. Test two was, do you believe that eternal life is found only through the crucified and risen Jesus? Uh, So that's the second test. So those are our two objective tests, right? So do you believe Jesus is God? Yes or no? Do you believe that Jesus is God? That didn't just come to you out of thin air. That didn't come from your flesh. That's the Holy Spirit doing something. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved from your sins? That he's the only means to eternal life? Those are two very objective tests to see the value, the, 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 the lasting nature of your faith. But here's the subjective one. And this is where it gets a little more complex. Test number three, your next blank. Is the direction of your life changed and changing? Is the direction of your life changed and changing? In Vacation Bible School a couple of weeks ago, a a, a nine-year-old boy asked me one of the best questions I've been asked in all of pastoral ministry, more succinct and clearly put than any adult has ever put it. He interrupted me in the middle of a sentence, raised his hand, and he said, How can I know if I've really believed in Jesus? How can I know if I've really believed in Jesus? Why did he ask that? 
Why do adults ask that in much more complicated ways? Probably because we profess faith. We said, yes, I believe Jesus is God. Yes, I believe he's the only way to eternal life. And then we look at our lives and we see sin. (laughs) We see things that reject the divinity and lordship of Jesus in my life. We, We see things that seem to take for granted what Jesus did on the cross. We go on sinning. We go on doubting just like Judas and just like Peter, right? So what's the difference between those two guys? And how do we know whether we've really believed? So there's those objective measures. Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus is the only way to eternal life? But what is the subjective measure? I want to interject that there's danger here. I think it can be dangerous to rely too much on the subjective and not enough on the objective. As Protestants, we're very reactive against anything that feels like rote religion, wherein you can just assume, well, they're they're baptized and they've said some words and they're a member of a church and they say the creed every Sunday, so they must be saved. We've reacted against that, but we have to be cautious not to become overly subjective to not pay attention to these objective tests. And where do I as a pastor see that most often? Most often I see it in your assurance of faith. You you seem to forget that I actually do believe that Jesus is God. I do believe he's the only way to eternal life. And the, the enemy speaks these lies to you about your sin and your doubt and your struggle. And you think, well, I must not be saved. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the subjective when you're thinking about yourself and to doubt whether or not you're truly a, a Christian. I also have concerns about this with our kids and how we raise them up. When a little one professes faith and we haven't seen some massive conversion experience, you know, sometimes we can heap expectations on them that I, I'm not sure are biblical. And so I think there is a tendency to withhold the sacraments from believing children that we have unintentionally set up unbiblical expectations of what conversion looks like, and I think that's been to the detriment of our children. So there are subjective measures of saving faith, but the subjective measures that I experienced as a kid and growing up in the church, I think are different from what the Bible says. What does the Bible say is a subjective measure? It's the work of the Spirit in us. It's the Holy Spirit's presence and impact on our lives. I've got a few texts printed in your worship guide here. Let me read these for you. From Romans chapter 8, it says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit assures us of our salvation. He shows us his presence. The next text from 1 John chapter 4, the same author as the Gospel of John. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify, oh, we testify, there's this objective thing again, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, objective, God abides in him. And he and God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, objective again, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, who's your subjective, loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. And now Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. These are the subjective measures to know whether you're a Christian or not. Does the Holy Spirit within you assure you that you're a Christian? Do you find yourself growing in love for God and neighbor? Do you see these fruits of the Spirit growing in your life? These are some subjective measures of whether or not you're a Christian. But keep in mind those two objective measures, believing that he's God, believing he's the only means of eternal life, that's a work of the Spirit in you as well. So when we impose more than this on ourselves or on our children, or on our friends. We do a disservice, and we're creating some new law that they've got to uh, achieve before they can come to Christ. So let's be biblical, and let's be consistent. If I was going to sum it up, I'd steal something my seminary professor, one of my seminary professors used to say. He said, the proof of your salvation, the proof is in the pudding, and the pudding is perseverance. That is, if we continue to trust Jesus, If we continue to follow Jesus, that's a sign of the Spirit's work. But our persevering, our continuing to believe is not the only thing that the Holy Spirit does. Look again at verse 63 in our text. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Here's your next blank. The resurrecting, life-giving Spirit intends to give Jesus' followers life now and in eternity. So can you see your life changing? Can you see your life changing? A couple years ago, I had a person give me a call who had recently professed faith in Jesus. Like two weeks before he'd first made his profession of faith, he had grown up in the church, but he'd never said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. And he finally crossed that threshold as a young adult. Well, not two weeks later, he calls me with a sense of confusion. He was disturbed. He wanted to get together and meet face-to-face. And so we got together, and I said, well, what do you want to talk about? And he said, well, I feel bad about some stuff I've been doing for a long time. I've, I mean, I've done this stuff for a long time. I've never felt, felt bad about it. So I asked him, what, what is it you're, you're feeling bad about? So he starts to tell me, and I said, oh, that, that's because what you're doing is sin, man. He said, but, but I didn't feel guilty before. And I said, that's great. That means you're alive now. <laughs> you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and now you're not. The flesh isn't helpful at all. It's the Spirit who gives life, and he calls us to a new way of living. The Spirit changes our loves. He changes our desires. He changes our life. So when we become a Christian, sometimes we see immediate changes. Other times, the changes are slow as we continue to trust Jesus more and more over time. You know, for me, I was a, 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 became a Christian. I professed faith when I was seven years old. 
I didn't have any major sins to speak of because I was a kid and because I was a compliant kid at that. It wasn't until my teens that I started to realize, man, I'm a, real, I'm a jerk. I'm a kind of a selfish, prideful person. But I felt the conviction of the Spirit and have slowly seen progress. And you guys know me. I can still be a jerk. I still need a lot of work. But I can look back and see these definite moments where God showed up where he brought life to my death and he put me in a new direction, even miraculous moments. Listen to how Peter puts it in in 2 Peter chapter 1, which is in your worship guide. He says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So what if you look at your life and you don't feel like you see much growth? You feel like you're the exact same person before you became uh, professed faith, before you joined our church or whatever. You just don't see any growth. You don't see these qualities in increasing measure. You don't feel your loves changing, your desires changing. What do you do? Here's your next blank. If you don't see your life growing in this trajectory, repent. (laughs) Repent and ask a Christian brother or sister for direction. And they'll tell you to believe. That's really the only answer every time. Believe the gospel and repent over and over. If you don't see yourself growing, repent and ask a Christian brother or sister for direction. What you're seeing in your life, if you feel this way, is probably sin. So believe the gospel and repent. Something about sin seems very enjoyable to you and satisfying to you, but it will destroy you in the end. So reject that sin and instead seek the satisfaction that comes through Christ alone. And then go to a Christian friend, uh, maybe your parent, uh, a brother or sister, another church member, your shepherd, elder. Come talk to me and ask for our insight. Because you know what? Sometimes Meg, my wife, sees the work of the Spirit in me more clearly than I do. Hmm? The people who are closest to us can speak into our lives and say, no, I know who you used to be. I've seen you come to life. But they also may say, you're right. (laughs) And I've been concerned about this and I've been praying for this. Let's believe the gospel now, right? The words of Jesus are the test of Christian faith in life. That's what made the difference in this text. That's what will make the difference in your life. So what is your relationship to the things that Jesus has said? If you believe his message, he will give you new life by his spirit. He will change you more and more into his image. Friends, believe that Jesus is the son of God. Believe that he is the Christ, the only way to eternal life. And give your life over to him. This little illustration I used with the kids earlier is not far from the truth. I mean, it is the truth. You can be on the throne of your life, and you're going to drive that car right into the ditch. Or you can die to yourself, to your agenda, to your desires, and say, Jesus, I believe you. I want you to be king. That's what I'm inviting you to today. And if you've never done it last week, We had three little boys profess faith in Jesus. 
I've had to drag the baptismal out and put water in. I'll do it again today. I'd be happy to do that. If you've never done this, if this is not true of you, today needs to be the day. Uh, we're we're going to wrap up early today. So uh, it's a short sermon. So you've got lots of time to get to lunch before the Baptist still. And you can still come grab me or one of our elders and profess faith in Jesus. So I'm in no rush. If you feel the Spirit pressing on you today, don't ignore it. Today's the day. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the Gospel of John. It's been such a joy and an honor, Lord, to preach these first six chapters over these last five months. God, if there's anyone here who still thinks um, they can run the show, that has not believed in, in Jesus as God and as Savior, I pray, Holy Spirit, you, you would grip their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself today so that they might have this new life that will change them today and forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.